somebody out there in dreamland. I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the beyond top secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial birth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. out there in dreamland namaste and shalom iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend thank you all very much for tuning into another broadcast of the beyond top secret texan podcast i am your host the beyond top secret texan and i am broadcasting to you from the third coast the coast with the most and the gulf coast of texas it is my privilege and pleasure to do so sorry web browser was uploading and kind of caught me by surprise did a little little weird glitch there but yeah, I'm coming to you right now. What you could call hot off the presses because it has been a rather very busy, less than even a day, uh, I'd say 12 hours, upon learning of an event, gathering research material, and presenting uh, what I'm going to be presenting right now. The life of Michael A. Aquino famed Temple of Set founder and psychological operations specialist for the United States Army his entire life. Very interesting and accredited acclaimed individual who has recently been declared dead. Uh, by a self-inflicted gunshot wound, it appears. But that might be, for various reasons, the no-foul play is presumed uh, he had health complications and was rapidly entering late stages into his life. Um, But basically, we're going to be reading his biography and then start reading three of his books for certain. Uh, We're going to be reading Mind War. We're going to be reading Far Find. And we are going to be... Or Find Far, sorry. We're going to be reading Mind War. We're going to be reading Find Far. And we're going to be reading Mind Star. Right now, I have before me Mind Star. Uh, We're going to be reading Mind Star. And first, it's the last of the trilogy, though. But we're going to be reading that first and working our way backwards um, to Mind War, which is the more mainstream and and open-sourced one. I know for a fact when I was in the United States Navy, the Mind War book was recommended reading and for the, you know, sailors recommended reading uh, development program. It was, uh, so Michael Aquino is very, very legitimate when it comes to his involvement in the United States government as a person, but strange as shit has happened uh, surrounding him, and it, of course, the controversial history of not only his religious beliefs, but the uh, 
MK Ultra psychological operations aspect to it, his link to a lot of abuse cases, such as the McMartin Tunnels case, his connection with the Finders program, uh, various CIA asset programs, he's had with the MK Ultra, child uh, abuse, satanic ritual abuse uh, angle to it. Michael Aquino is infamous and legendary for being basically the most evil person in many, many people's eyes in American history. Um, and by many, I mean thousands and thousands of people's eyes. Uh, huge segments of society view Michael Aquino as literally the manifestation of uh, Satan on Earth. And that he is everything from a uh, trans woman appearing him to be a man in the military. Um, you know, everything from um, an AI cyborg or Dr. Mangula. Um, or, or Jackie Kennedy in disguise uh, the, the history of the infamy surrounding him is immediately enough to, to take notice and to speak about it because on the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast we speak about the most controversial uh, most extreme subjects and we do so without fear and we present them without fear Michael Aquino is di- apparently though has been scrubbed off the internet. There is no Wikipedia article on him, even though he is world famous um, in, in all you contra- uh, conspiracy circles, all military circles. Uh, highly, highly influential uh, author, just for that sake alone, highly influential author with many books to his credit. Um, the Temp temple of set which is the michael aquino uh temple that he formed uh, that wikipedia article is still there but the michael aquino link is it leads to a page that does not exist which is bizarre because michael aquino's wikipedia was in existence earlier this year i know that for a fact because it's one of those things that you kind of just keep going over and looking at and like you know not this has not been obscure um, to my research or anything like that like you constantly have to look at michael aquino's work or his history connection with things like the stargate program uh minister goats type level stuff you know and it all kind of relates back to this idea of gnosticism um you know in itself because temple of Seda is considered a part of gnosticism itself so the idea that Michael Aquino does not have a Wikipedia page strikes very much the fact that it's censored and covered up. And I went on the Wayback Machine and it itself is censored. So that means it was uh, purposefully scrubbed off that off that server. But for example, in the encyclopedia.com article uh, for Michael Aquino's biography, it does not list, list him as deceased. Michael Aquino, born 1946, but it was not updated, and it has not been updated now recently. So it still has just skeletal amounts of information, you know, with links and a little bit of a biograph- biographical summary. But to actually find a real biography, uh, you have to do some digging, some Google foo to find some third-party biographical presentations on Michael Aquino that are more done by fans or um, in the case that I found an actual resume 
from the Michael Aquino uh, supporters and his his estate to kind of like distribute that would give it basically his resume of his career to any kind of uh, future you know I guess business or collaborators or what have you but it is his actual resume that we'll be reading we're gonna read about him first and then go into uh, Mindstar so thank you all very much uh, for tuning in and for listening with an open mind and at least seeing that this is a reality and this is a very important uh, figure in the 20th century's development of the military and its connection with both the paranormal and with uh, the occult and with a lot of uh, what we'd call like uh, very uh, no doubt controversial but very uh, sci-fi when it comes to ESP, uh, MK Ultra, hypnosis, creation of super soldiers, mental uh, aspects like uh, uh, remote viewing, astral projection, uh, you know, very, very occult, very, very uh, spiritually and, and metaphysically inclined. Uh, military philosophy and military philosopher because you know, the, this entire time when he's creating the temple of set when he's um, creating the books mind war find far and um, mind start he is an officer in the United States Army absolutely that that's incontrovertible and real and he was on things like daily talk shows I believe it was uh, the Oprah Winfrey show um, that he was openly a leader of the Temple of Set and historically is still known as the first satanic priest in the United States Army um that's absolutely a fact. Like, that is in the books. That's a fact. And Wikipedia doesn't want to have an article about him, which is very suspicious, especially since he's just recently died. Or has been proclaimed dead, during which now is the era of what Q has talked about, the four-year delta, where the pedophiles and the Satanists and the uh, human traffickers for those programs, MK Ultra and the CIA's uh, child soldier programs were facing military tribunals and justice uh, as extreme as corporal punishment or life imprisonment in Guantanamo Bay that Michael Aquino would so coincidentally kill himself and um, it would be by gunshot to the head um, either by his own hand or by someone else's um, which is very, very reminiscent of, like, the Third Reich when they did their officer purges, which is what's going on in America as a military junta, which is purging, <coughs> um, purging, basically, hostile occult elements or separatist occult elements, if you want to look at it that way. There's separatist internal, um, occult elements are elements within these programs that are rogue and operating basically without laws or oversight uh, which is itself a crime against humanity 
to even proceed in those directions, let alone the specifics or what's being accomplished in those programs. Um, so it's very, very much the case that Michael Aquino has been killed in the course of this justice um, or this purge um, in the junta, the military junta of the United States, and that um, you know he was scrubbed, basically just absolutely liquidated and then erased, and that he's not going to be uh, dishonored for his service because to do so would just bring more shame and controversy to the subject, um, and the army is is not that, you know, is not that uh, eager to kind of besmirch their already smirched name that that has been the defeat of the global war on terror. So this is quickly going to be memory hold and swept under the rug. But yes, they were, it is the last thing that Michael Aquino did was uh, sue or be involved in a lawsuit, a judicial he a suit with the United States Army about um, uh, investigating his activities in government-run programs for fraud and for, you know, di different kinds of uh, auditing procedures. And that was really the last thing that was going on in Michael Aquino's life, quote-unquote, for real, you know, before he sh shot himself. Whether that be either suicide or... Uh, foul play, you know, that is that is a legal system's uh, investigation and, and claims to make, but dead by self-inflicted gunshot wound is the is the leading cause right now in paper. So yeah, this wasn't updated yet, so this 1946 personal. He was born on October 16, 1946 in San Francisco, California. He would later marry Lilith Sinclair, a satanic cult leader. Its education involved graduating the University of California in Santa Barbara with a Bachelor of Arts in 1986, or 1968, sorry, and a Master's of Arts in 1976, with a PhD earned in 1980. His last known address was in San Francisco, California. And he even has his email address. Uh, career. is a U.S. Army career officer specializing in psychological warfare. Began in 1968. Became lieutenant colonel in military intelligence. Re-retired. Served in Vietnam. Ordained satan satanic priest 1971-1972. Temple of Set. Founder and leader. 1975 to 1996. Extracurriculars, member of Eagle Scouts Honor Society, past national commander of the Eagle Scouts of America. That's right, that this man, who was a lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Army, as well as a ordained satanic priest and leader of the Temple of Set, from 1975 to 1996, was literally the lead, was literally a, the national commander of the Eagle Scouts. <laughs> and is in the Eagle Scouts Honor Society. Which is basically like the Eagle Scout Hall of Fame for, for people who were like really helped out the Eagle Scouts. 
Writings. The Church of Satan, privately printed, 1989. Contributed to periodicals including Cloven Hoof. Sidelights. In 1969, one year after Michael A. Aquino, both graduated from the University of California, Santa Barbara with a BA, Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, and joined the Army as a Psychological Warfare Specialist, he joined the Church of Satan, headed by Anton LaVey. Aquino then served a tour of duty in Vietnam. When he returned, the Army stationed him in Kentucky, and he became a priest within the Church of Satan, forming a grotto, a group of believers that met in his home there. Aquino soon became disenchanted with the church, however, under LeVay's leadership, and in 1972, he, along with Lilith Sinclair, a Church of Satan leader, who eventually married Aquino, split from it. This split appears to stem, in large part, from the two men's conflicting ideologies. LeVay, an atheist, believed that Satan did not exist, but rather represented as a symbol strength and defiance. Aquino, on the other hand, a theist, believed in the literal existence of Satan, and in 1975 he established a church of his own known as the Temple of Set. Set is an ancient Egyptian god who evolved from the Judeo-Christian figure of Satan. Reportedly appeared before Aquino and gave him a document called the Book of Coming Forth by Night, the founding text of the temple. According to the contributor to Religious Leaders of America, Gakino defined the temple's ambition as awakening the divine power of the individual through the deliberate exercise of will and intelligence, referring to the process by which this happens as Zipper. Two reasons why so little is known about the group, including the size of its following or number of congregations, stems from its secretive atmosphere as well as its emphasis on the individual over unity. While in the position of high priest of the Temple of Set, Aquino wrote and self-published The Church of Satan. In 1996, Aquino stepped down from this position, leaving the group in the hands of Don Webb. Biographical and Critical Sources and it goes on to say Encyclopedia of Occultism, Parapsychology, Religious Leaders of America, 2nd Edition, and uh, online, exactly, you can go to his website, which is zepper.org, and uh, University of Virginia Religious Movements website, you know, speaks, has the paperwork for the uh, filing for their religious tax exemption status, as well as their recognition by the United States military as an official religious church, meaning that a official religious chaplain has to serve at every base or be able to be you know called upon and that recruits and officers enlisted and officers can acknowledge the fact that they belong to the temple of set and it's official in their paperwork like if you have your dog tags it has your religion on them and that says temple of set or if you uh you know wish anything happens to you they have to basically make sure that the ceremony, your last rites are the temple of Set's last rites. Um, I know it's weird as shit, but that's how it works. <laughs> it's a, that's absolutely um, an official and recognized religion called the Temple of Set. Right, and we'll read a little bit about the Temple of Set, um, but we'll read more about Michael Aquino because Michael Aquino is. We always want to differentiate between. Uh, the groups which are 
obviously propaganda in one way and then the, the person, which is, you know, where it originates from or who influences it and how it plays out. So Michael A. Aquino, Lieutenant Colonel Psychological Operations, 1st Special Forces Regiment, United States Army, retired. 13th Baron of Rochain, Clan Campbell, Argyllshire, Scotland, United Kingdom. Priest of Set, San Francisco, California. Vitea, as of September 1st, 2018. This is the resume. Arms, granted by the Lord Leon, King of Arms, Court of the Lord Leon, Edinburgh, Scotland, by letters patent of May 18th, 2006. And it's this coat of arms, uh, traditional left-facing knight with what appears to be a wolf, a wolf on the helm of an evergreen, um, a lion with the key, and we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We have eight frills, uh, eight chevrons. Definitely a Pleiadian or reptilian. Uh, what was eight? Eight, yeah, reptilian. Sorry, Orion Draco is eight. Um, the eight-sided star. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yep. Biennial standard and badge, the conifer, with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stars. It's uh, definitely a uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and they're all pentagrams. Yep. Academic. Oh, and the wolf. There's a wolf. Academic. University of California, Santa Barbara. George Washington University. Civilian Education Institution. It's just, it's just Education, Santa Barbara University. BA Political Science. Master's Political Science. PhD Political Science. Um, university courses taught. It was a Golden Gate University professor. He taught uh, political science 100, 110, 111, 112, 120, 121. So basically, introduction to politics, issues in American government's politics, political theory, political theory, contemporary political ideologies, international politics, United States foreign policy, comparative political systems, dynamics of Western culture. But oddly, he had a steady access and stream to college-age youths. Golden Gate University, probably a front or a pipeline between him and recruits. Um, schools like that, very obscure state schools and community colleges are typically um, uh, funded a lot by the military so they have very um, diversified portfolios in what you know their interests are so it's not surprising that he taught at a very a minor community college. Military, Army Officer Branch, Psychological Operations, Additional Officer Branch Qualifications, Armor, Civilian Affairs, Military Intelligence, and Special Forces, Army Primary Specialty Skill Identifier, 48G, Politico, Military Affairs Officer, Army Additional Skills Identifiers, 3Y, Space Activities Officer, 4S, Foreign Affairs, Area Officer, Western Europe. 5E, Psychological Operations Officer. 5G, Special Forces Officer. 5P, Parachutists. 5W, Civil Affairs Officer. 35B, 
Strategic Intelligence Officer. FA-48 Defense Attaché. 50A Force Development Officer. 54A Operations and Training Officer. Government Schools Attended. Psychological Operations Extension Course. U.S. Army JFK Special Op uh, Warfare Center. Fort Bragg, North Carolina. 1968. Airborne Paratrooper Course. U.S. Army Infantry Center. Fort Benning, Georgia. 1968. Armor Officer Basic Course. U.S. Army Armor Center. Fort Knox, Kentucky. 1968. Fort Knox. Psychological Operations Unit Officer Course, U.S. Army JFK Special Warfare Center, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, 1969. Armor Officer Advanced Course, U.S. Army Armor Center, Fort Knox, Kentucky, 1976. Special Forces Green Beret Course, U.S. Army JFK Special Warfare Center, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, 1976. Command and General Staff Officer Course, Command uh, Commandant's List, U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, 1979. Foreign Area Officer Course, U.S. Army JFK Special Warfare Center, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, 1979. Central Intelligence Agency, Washington, D.C. Military Intelligence Officer Qualification Course, Advanced U.S. Army Intelligence Center, Fort Hachachuca, Arizona, 1980. Reserve Attaché Course, Defense Intelligence Course, College, Defense Intelligence Agency, Washington, D.C., 1981. West Europe Area Studies Course, Foreign Service Institute, Department of the State, Washington, D.C., 1982. Interdepartmental Foreign Affairs Seminar, Foreign Service Institute, Department of the State, Washington, D.C., 1983. Strategic Intelligence Course, Defense Intelligence College, Defense Intelligence Agency, Washington, D.C., 1984. Civil Affairs Officer Advanced Course, Distinguished Graduate, U.S. Army JFK Special Warfare Center, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, 1985. National Security Management Course, National Defense University, Washington, D.C., 1986. The Industrial College of the Armed Forces Course, National Defense University, Washington, D.C., 1987. Joint Space Intelligence Operations Course, 3423rd Technical Training Squadron, U.S. Air Force, Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado, 1990. Military Decorations and Awards, Bronze Star Medal, 1970. Meritus Service Medal, 1994. Air Medal, 1970. Army Commendation Medal, Two Oak Leaf Clusters, 1969, 1972, 1979. National Defense Service Medal, Two Awards, 1968, 1990. Vietnam Service Medal, three campaigns, 1969-1970. Army Overseas Ribbon, 2006. Armed Forces Reserve Medal with Hourglass, 1982-1992. Army Reserve Components Achievement Medal, One Oak Leaf Cluster, 1977-1981. Army Service Ribbon, 1983. Army Reserve Components Overseas Training Ribbon, 1984. Parachutist Badge, 1968. Special Forces Tab, 1984. U.S. Air Force Space and Missile Badge, 1990. Republic of Vietnam Cross of Gallantry, 1970. Republic of Vietnam Psychological Warfare Medal, First Class, 1974. Republic of Vietnam Air Services Medal, Honor Grade, 1970. Offices held and honors received. Honor Graduate, Santa Barbara High School, 1964. Gold Seal Bearer Life Membership Award, California Scholarship Federation. 
Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara National Commander, Eagle Scout Federation from 1965 to 1966, Distinguished Service Award Medal, Knight Eagle, Eagle Scout Honor Society, Induction, Lieutenant Colonel, National Society of the Pershing Rifles, that's Collegiate RTC Honor Society, Department of Honor, Army Scholarship, University of California, Lifetime Membership Award, National Convention of Committees, Scrabbert and Blade, Collegiate ROTC, uh, Honor Society, Alpha Pi Omega, National Service Fraternity, Chapter Charter President, Regional Conference Chairman, Recipient of Distinguished Service Key, National Sojourners Award, Scholarship, Reserve Officer Association of the United States Military, and Distinguished Military Graduate, University of uh, California. Right, so basically a shitload. Initiatory, now we get into the spiritual stuff. The weird shit. As of though the, the other shit is not weird, by default and it's very nature um, let's never make that 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 mistake of living in a society that thinks the military is absolutely normal it is 100% as weird and occult as any cult society or any religion or any temple it's just that it's doctrine and it's execution is based it it's ideology is based on its doctrine and its executions of that doctrine, uh, rather than just philosophy or metaphysics. It is literally a, a physicalist church. Initiatory. The Church of Satan, 1969-1975. <laughs> Satanist, uh, first degree, 1969. Warlock, second degree, 1969. Priest of Mindy's, 1970. Red Magistar Caverna. 1971. Magistar Templey, 1973. Council of Nine. 1970-1975 The Temple of Set 1975-2 Infinity Magus 5 or Magus 5 uh, 1975 Epsismus 6 1979 High Priest of Set 1975 1979 1982 to 1996 <laughs> Order of the Trapezoid 1970, Knight, 1970 to 1982, Grandmaster from 1982 to 1987, The Rune Guild, 1980, Dryton, 1988. Honorary Member, 1989. The Masketonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts, 1915 to 2016. Temple, First Degree. The Hawaii Opele Hawaii Life Member Church, 1959. For some reason, the Hawaii Pele Hawaiian Church of Life does. Uh, for some reason, that doesn't look like it belongs there, but it, okay. Exactly, well, I mean... <laughs> that's the one that looks out of place. That's the one that looks, that's the one that looks suspicious. Where you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> What's he doing in the Hawaiian Life Church? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Books. Amazon USA Authors Page. He's, a, he's, he's actually an author. I don't know why Wikipedia would at least just like bare bones his article just to his books. It doesn't make any sense. Like, he doesn't have a Wikipedia article. He's a published author. 
for a long time, at least for that. He has a Church of Satan, uh, Extreme Prejudice, uh, the, the, the basically the Satanic Abuse Scandal, which is his own book of uh, defense. Find Far, which is the book we're going to be reading uh, second after Mind Star. Fire Force, a Star Wars parody. I mean, hey, I get it. <laughs> sometimes you just got to write a fucking Star Wars fan fiction. It's like, like, sometimes, no matter how much crazy shit that goes on, you just want to sit down and rewrite a movie. <laughs> and rewrite a movie. That they, like, Indiana Jones uh, and Hitler team up and <laughs> have to, like, say, what? Yeah, they just... Ghost Rides, which is also apparently a, um, a horror book, which he wrote. Ghost Rides. Illuminox, which is like Illuminati, but it's instead of the Audi, it's X. Illuminox. Uh, Mindstar. Mind War. So we're going to be reading Mindstar, we're going to be reading Find Far, and we're going to be reading uh, Mind War in, in, in order. But we're going to be reading them one at a time. Morlandale, which is a uh, fantasist romance, a book of poetry. The Neutron Bomb. Ode to Ismay, Memoirs of Captain Nemo. See, like, he was actually a fiction writer, but I get that because is people don't think you can do that. And it's one of the things that's very natural for people with accomplished lives to also pursue fiction and, like, uh, like you know, imaginative creative works because it's it's also part of like that that you have to kind of express it in a way of what he's like there's no lying about his accreditation the guy was really accomplished but he was also finding times to write romance books set in the middle ages and and fan fiction based on characters that already exist like the Star Wars book but he also wrote the satanic bible so it's not like he's like he's also wrote the satanic bible those two things are facts like yes and yes, those are, those, are, those are at the same time. Those those realities exist. The Temple of Set. That's what I'm saying. Like so we, yes, he made up the Temple of Set, an entire officially recognized uh, version of the, the Temple of Satan, as they saying in a Church of Satan. But yes, he also did write a a Star Wars fan fiction book, <laughs> where he, he well, you know, he just you just look at yourself thinking about it. You can't just look thinking. About it. We Break the Sword. This is a good one. We Break the Sword. Uh, it's a political science book where he's talking about the European Union being necessary and basically being the next Third Reich, the Fourth Reich, and the idea of the Nazis breaking the sword of communism by being a military that can compete with Russia and it's like very much Western and NATO doesn't want really to be affiliated with the truth anymore, which is that uh, they are absolutely 100% Nazis. Everyone knows this. They embrace it. And yes, it's illegal in Germany. It's illegal in some countries to even talk about uh, the Third Reich or bring up the Holocaust, but the proof is in the absolute uh, writing on the wall, the real evidence there is that the Ukrainians and NATO and the EU are all fucking Nazis. They love Nazis. They they want that shit to happen again. They they love it. They're even sponsored by Israelites and things like that. The Azov Battalion. All Nazis. They love it. 
It's like, that's the whole thing. And they're all Satanists. They're all Satanic Nazis, which is absolutely why Michael Aquino should never be forgotten because it is absolutely hand-in-hand hand with what's going on now. If you want to study the, say, history of the United States Army or the United States military in terms of its global empireship and what it really exerts control over, say, for example, through the propaganda of the, of the Hollywood movie industry or the entertainment complex industry um, and how it's all recruiting, say, for the sports in, in, uh, sports entertainment complex industry and how that's a pipeline for athletic youth to get basically educated and drafted into the military, uh, especially special forces operations. Uh, Michael Aquino is a big, big part of all this shit. He's a big fucking contributor to it, and he's not insignificant. Um, as much as people would like to downplay him later as just a weirdo or a kook or an eccentric person who brought a lot of attention to himself, um, to the embarrassments of the United States Army. Like, the United States Army did not want to work with him as he pursued on his free time his own religious freedoms and, and eccentricities. That is completely untrue. The fact is that his officially becoming the Church of Satan or the or Church of a Temple of Set leader in the United States Army Chaplain Corps and establishing that was 100% part of a grander strategy by the army and who controls the army itself which is the officially the New World Order, or at least that cabal, the Rothschild cabal. Uh, never forget, for example, that uh, the Washington, D.C. component is the military pillar of the three Red Star state, which is uh, London City being the banking and financial capital and the Vatican City being the religious capital. And Michael Aquino is very much their attempt at creating a type of Jesuit community, a highly spiritually and religiously motivated, almost to the point of extremism and zealousness, but it's merged with the idea of cultural and state identity, that of the West, that of the United States or its allies, and its merger of religious and political ideologies would be manifested not in a Judeo-Christian aspect of it, but this kind of uh, Egyptian uh, satanic New Age concept, which would allow for them to recruit people with like ESP uh, sensitivities for their remote viewing Stargate programs are people who have psychological warfare talents, people who, you know, are very good at manipulation or are um, uh, creating, um, you know, psychological fronts and operations, uh, utilizing their own, you know, strengths in that way. The idea, though, is that he's cross-trained so extensively that you know it didn't just limit itself to like a bureaucratic clerk or you know a general who just rides a desk or maybe somebody in the military uh, medical corps you know in the reserves but someone who actively was a part of a lot of 
deeper things that are, it's clear that the training was there. Parachutist, the special operations, the special warfare officer um, training, the armor training, for example, in, in Fort Knox. Domestic operations are obvious that this guy was performing these operations domestically um, as well as abroad with the with the foreign service medal the foreign deployment medal being in 2006 so no doubt that this individual was um, highly highly influential in the last you know 40 years 40 years of United States domestic psychological operations on its own people, its own citizens, at the sponsorship of Washington, D.C., spreading Satanism, spreading drug abuse, probably spreading perversions like pornography or, or ritualistic sex and things like that uh, through its media and content, the MK Ultra programming, Beta 6 Kitten programming, a lot of people have experience with that but also even probably um, conducting military aggressive operations against enemies of the state as a satanic super soldier type shock troop commander or at least overseer um, in, in what I can only suspect against Christian compounds or against religious compounds like um, Muslim extremists or American Moors, uh, for example, in America, where they would intentionally use the religious uh, hatred or the religious uh, uh, motivations present there to to help cover, at least help inspire that the military people would perform these basically purges or at least acts of domestic terrorism against its own citizens. Let alone the MK Ultra convincing and brainwashing of uh, uh, justifying and in, in the justification necessary to create um, disposable pawns in this game where real lives are, are basically played with and thrown away uh, to create bigger and greater agendas. And it's very troubling and very alarming that the Joint Space Intelligence Operations course uh, was as late as 1990 meaning that the effective blockade that the government placed on NASA, much to my suspicion, was a absolute uh, false flag, if you were, for example, after the Challenger, which was a false flag, to basically create an obsolete shuttle program while a great deal of activity really was going on in the higher atmospheres around space, but to keep the civilian population basically looking down at the grounded and troubled uh, NASA developments of the 1990s. Space Force is basically a, a member of Space Force. He was basically a member of the United States Special Forces. And he was a member of the United States Airborne. And that is not something they give away. They just do not give that away because you're a weirdo who doesn't, you know, represent the majority or popular opinion of your officers in your chain of command or in the enlisted personnel in your command. As they're like, it is not a, it's not, 
If he was not a part of the majority of how this works, he would not have been tolerated enough to have achieved as much as he's done. The fact is, someone from a much higher position of power was encouraging and facilitating his rise through this chain of command, putting him where he needed to be. Now, his origins in San Francisco are very suspicious because San Francisco, since the 1940s, I want to say, has been a New World Order headquarters. Some call it the Washington, D.C. of the West Coast. And San Francisco operates in many of the same globalist but neutral uh domestically political type agendas which we've now recalled Silicon Valley or Big Tech but that's what it morphed into at this time 1960s it was a cultural center much like London much like Tavistock uh, a very popular huge urban sprawl that promotes experimental lifestyles possibly always the most liberal city in America, even more liberal than, say, New York City or uh, Chicago in terms of uh, what is permissible in San Francisco socially, especially in the late 60s, right? So this is well after Haight-Ashbury. This is Laurel Canyon. This is the United States military has been experimenting on the West Coast solidly for, like, 40 years and, you know, since the 1920s, and then after they rebuilt the San Francisco uh, cityscape from the earthquakes, they basically claimed the, the population as their guinea pigs. Uh, and then, yeah, they've been experimenting literally in the San Francisco region, spraying them with bioweapons, introducing drugs like LSD, uh, heroin, speed, through San Francisco and through its party scene to distribute uh, across there. The creation of the, the hippie movement, for example, was in the San Francisco area. CIA's Operation Midnight Climax was in the San Francisco and L.A. area. Um, this is not exactly... Um, this is not disconnected. This is all connected. And the fact that Michael A. Aquino emerged from here, married a woman who was also a member of the Church of Satan, and the Church of Satan, I believe, even started in San Francisco, that... This was, from the very beginning, a New World Order plot to popularize what would spiritually justify the fascist or military takeover of the United States, what we would know as the free world, through the era of the Vietnam Imperial expansion, the Cold War, and... Um, The, oh, the the New World Order take over the United States itself and what that really means when it comes to the late stage Cold War and afterwards, the New American Century, and that the creation of a American religion is the creation of the Temple and Church of Satan and the Temple of Set. Uh, specifically the Temple of Set. 
Uh, because the idea of the Church of Satan, as previously mentioned, was that it's an atheistic mental doctrine. It, it does not recognize God or Satan as even existing. That's the big problem with the Church of Satan, is that for this to be a religion, it must have gods. And if it's going to be a New World religion produced by the military, produced by the New World Order, Washington, D.C., invasive society, uh, the federal system, the United States company, it has to be based on a real theology and given the importance of worshipping real cosmic or metaphysical beings with ramifications and coincidence uh, and consequences to failure or to uh, transgression it has to have a higher spiritual authority to it besides just the the self or the person the believer this is why Michael Aquino separated and was given the sponsorship over figures like Anton LaVey because what separates occultism unorthodox or occultism minor uh, obscure is the belief in the the material the belief in the atheistic the belief that this isn't real right the belief that occultism for what it's worth is not real even if it's pursued even if it's studied that's what relates like say minor occultism minor secret societies things like that where you don't really believe in magic you don't really believe in higher powers you don't really believe in forces beyond your control or understanding you're just kind of doing it as a fashion statement or as some kind of practice or as a social club or as some kind of fun and games for weirdos what makes a occult society a truly spiritual religion a truly recognized church is the inclusion of higher powers in this case the adoption of ancient Egyptian pantheons because while it might have its roots in the rebirth of the Church of Satan in America it's true understanding is the Church of Ancient Egypt or the Church of Egypt which is even weirder because the official American New World Order religion is ancient Egyptian. Which is even less surprising when you understand the rites of Oriental Freemasonry, which believes that America was ancient Egypt. And that that one higher uh, arch right doctrine, or whatever they call it, uh, where you learn that America was the old Biblical Testament times... Uh, was the backbone for the Mormon church. And so Mormonism and the Temple of Set have more in common than they have different in many ways. And there's a lot of which people don't want to understand that the American society is desperately trying to create a religion that will make its culture permanent in the history of the world because all materialist societies rise and fall 
but they have no true cultural legacy of their own. The idea of a cultural immortality is the creation of a religion. And the religion will... It, it, it increases the culture's longevity almost forever. Because the culture is always studied in terms of its religion. And religions are never forgotten. While states may come and go, and entire countries fall into the sands of time, the greater purpose of the New World Order is to try to create a literal thousand-year Reich. A society that can last culturally for 1,000 years. And the New World Order, which is, like I said before, Washington, D.C., London City in the U.K., and the Vatican... Which I know you would think they're going to use Catholicism because Catholicism is actually Roman. It is not their own religion. But that the Catholicism that we celebrate now are actually the rites of the Temple of Set or at least the Temple of the Parthenon of Rome. All cleverly disguised. But to be unique to the New World Order... The Temple of Set is where they're going to go with that. The Temple of Set is their dream with this. And the originator of it, their Martin Luther, of their Protestantism, which was the Protestantism against even Christianity, against Judeo-Christianity, is the return to Egyptian magics, new mystery schools, as believed and practiced by the Freemasons, by various different occult societies that together like the stars of the EU or the seven stars on the crest, create a thousand points of light, create a unified but new age occult uh, American you know, new world order, western cosmicism that will be studied and influence society for 1,000 years to follow. An entire millennia where the most popular religion is literally a religion that was created by the military of the United States of America to justify its own aggressive expansion and worldwide conquest without justification politically beyond the fact that it was powerful enough to do so. This ideological justification of the American empire will exist longer than history tells of the actions and the people responsible for creating America as it was. So we're in a thousand years when people hear America, the United States of America, the USA, they will think of this religion that we are now currently calling the Temple of Set, but will no day, no doubt, be evolved and be uh, merged with Catholicism to create the what will effectively be the New World Order religion, the New World Order Church, which is, I think, going to serve as a type of um, modern alternative to a rapidly aging. Um, Abrahamic system of Judaism, Catholicism, and uh, 
Islam or Orthodox Islam because what they're doing with the third temple and they're constructing the third temple right now in Yemen or uh, yeah, yeah, Yemen in Saudi Arabia controlled Yemen that they want to basically uh, unify Catholicism and Islam to make uh, Catholicism with Judaism serving as its Old Testament, its mutually shared Old Testament Abrahamic scholarly like experts. Like the Jews can still be the Jews, but they're, they only serve as scribes and experts of a mutually shared Old Testament to a now unified and allied faith known as Catholicism because it's Catholic liturgies and the, the praise of the Virgin Mary, which is who's Miriam in the Quran. Uh, by the way, there's an entire book in the Quran about Mary, and she's known as Miriam. And so it's Islam in very many ways will go unchanged. They'll just mutually share space as Catholics and, Is and Islamists see eye to eye that they basically worship the same deity in the same way. Now the Western counterpart for the modern man will be the New Age Temple of Set originating. But what's new is old again. It will be Egyptian magics. The Egyptian pantheon and the culture and laws of Egypt which is the 42 laws of Mott which is um, the Osirian cycle, Isis cats all that weird shit, mummies all that all that weird shit yep, that'll, that'll be coming back and that'll be for the next thousand years if the new world order has its way now we can thank Michael Aquino for making it happen because he's the one who got the ball rolling and that is undeniable because it always takes the actions of men the real actions of human beings to begin the movements that become bigger than all people put together just like how the rise of Christianity just like the rise of Judaism just like the rise of uh, any religion Buddhism started with the behavior and the actions of one man and, but in this case it was the creation of the temple of Set and we'll see if it really does succeed we'll see if it becomes more popular than say uh, Scientology another artificial government created new world order religion Scientology we'll see if it becomes more popular than eco-fascism which I think is currently going to be the most, superior, the most supreme future belief system the most pure future extremism is eco-fascism but I digress but next time we're going to be reading the beginning of Mindstar we're going to be reading the first pages of that thank you all very much you guys got a lot of guts thank you all very much All right, now we're reading the Mind War book by Michael A. Aquino, Ph.D., Priest of Set. Published 2016, copyright 2018, Michael A. Aquino.
Aquino, Barony of Rockane. And the post office box, all the address, San Francisco, California, United States of America. Here are the listings of the other books written that are listed in the index. The Church of Satan, two volumes. This is nonfiction. Church of Satan, two volumes. Extreme Prejudice, the Presidio Satanic Abuse Scam. Illuminox, Rosicrucianism Reawakened. The Mind Trilogy, listed under nonfiction, which is what we're going to be reading. Mind War, Mind Star, and Find Far. The Neutron Bomb. The Temple of Set, two volumes. Fiction. Fire Force, a Star Wars parody. Incre including Secrets of the Lost Ark. Morlandale, Song of the Illuminati Darkness. By the, Run the One Ring. Ode to Ismay, Memoirs of Captain Nemo. We Break the Sword, the Nazi Peace of 1940. Which I researched as an alternative fiction... Quote unquote, this is weird as shit. Alternative fiction where the Nazis publicly created a peace treaty with America and with the England and the um, Allies and formed the European Union in the 1940s so that um, basically the events of what happened in real life is what, you know, really occurred in this alternative fiction. So it's telling you without disclosing the information from a military insider that yes back in the day this was a conspiracy theory and, and still is but it's very apparent that all the Third Reich leaders became the leaders of NATO and the United Nations and now eventually the leaders of the European Union so that the we break the sword is if the Nazis became peaceful and just formed the European Union in the 1940s instead of having to go through the United Nations NATO um, Cold War, all that bullshit. So, they just kind of formed the European Union uh, way earlier and were able to to put a stop to most of the Cold War. Autobiographies uh, including Ghost Rides and The Grail Mission, as well as being a chief editor in Pegasus in Pinfeathers, collected poems by Betty Ford. So he, he apparently collected and edited the poems of Betty Ford. Famous for the Betty Ford Clinic in California. Um, what can we say? Those kooky Californians on that kooky West Coast. That wacky West Coast. This is the inscription, the dedication. Lilith and I dedicate Mindstar to our fur and feather and scale family, to whom we owe more than we can express and whom we shall rejoin at the Rainbow Bridge. And then it lists literally pages of deceased pets. Pages of deceased pets. Table of Contents. Dedicatio. Which is what we just read, the dedications. 
Now we're going to be reading uh, the chapters. This is the begin when they begin chapters. Let's just read the chapters off title-wise. The Universe. And then it's uh, subheaded into Multiversiality, The Objective Universe, The Subjective Universe, The Subjective and Objective, Collective Subjectivity, The Universal Course of the Mind Star, Conscious Existence, Consciousness, Metaphysics, Consciousness as an Entity, Physics, Consciousness as an Illusion, End Consequence, then the third chapter is Egypt, Confronting Ancient Egypt, Egyptian History, the Nidaru, Set, and then four, Amnesia, the Soul, uh, Western Religions, Judeo-Christians, Jewish and Christian, and five, Amnesia, the Mind Star, A, Mind Star, B, Fields, Definition, Life Fields, Telos, Thought Fields, Egyptian Mind Star, Emanations, then he goes Kat, Rin, Kabat, Abba, Ka, Seka, Ak, which is their Egyptian, uh, I don't know, magical terms. Conventionalist, Blinders, Mind Star, Activity, Metaphysical Evidence, Logos, the Telos of Logos, Historical, Non-Telos, Free Will, Skepticism, skepticism Epicureanism, Sophism, Stoicism, Cynicism, Scholasticism, Reformation, uh, Theological Crisis, Determinism, Secular Negative Free Will, The Enlightenment, Secular Positive Free Will, Secular Emotional Free Will, um, Historical Non-Telos Determination, Empiricism, Dialectic Idealism, Will to Power, Dialectical Materialism, Mind Control and the Mind War, Death, Demystified, From Terror to Transformation, Who Owns Your Body, 1. The State, Two, religion. Three, professions. Four, psychiatry. Five, family. Six, your familiars. Seven, yourself. Materialism. The big black sack. The conceit of atheism. The timidity of agnosticism. The prison of physics. The taboo of the metaphysics. Inadequate alphabetics. Symbolism. Orwellian unwords. Sacking the sack. Profane religions, Extrapla uh, extrapolation, procrustean, prescriptions, sometimes they come back, reincarnation, resurrection, necromancy, zombification, posthumous pageantry, monolithic amnesia, neater zertite, the two paths, the right hand path, the left hand path, metamorphosis, Catalyst, and it's spelled Cotalist with K-H-A-T, uh, you know, a list. Cotalepsy. Cotastrophe. Absolution. Absence. And then prescience, prudence, practicality, pageantry. Sick, elto, ad astra. States of life. Sensory deprivation. Mind star vision. The emperor of dreams. The end of the beginning. Afterwards, the sphinx and the chimera. Then there's a bibliography, an index, and about the author. And the entire pay book is about 287 pages long. So we will be reading this in a few sections. You know, a few episodes and everything. But hopefully we'll be reading all of it. And then continuing into Find Far and then ultimately to Mind War. Preface. 
What the dead had no speech for, when the living, they can tell you, being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. T.S. Eliot What is conscious existence? As humans experience it, what is the significance to them? And does it have a consequence? These questions are not only at the core of human introspection, but dictate both individual and group beliefs concerning reality. Such beliefs in turn both encourage and constrain behavior. If, for instance, you regard your incarnated physical life as the complete extent of your existence, you will tend to conduct yourself much differently than an immortal being only temporarily linked to a physical body. Closely related to this problem is the question of purpose. Do humans have one? And if so, whence comes one? Mindstar was written by a dead man, and what I can extremely close to physical death from cancer in 2015. That lent a special motivation and urgency to create this book in disregard of pain and exhaustion. In order to make its contents available to suitable readers within this physical environment, had it been written by a living man, it might not have been tongue with fire. Assumptions concerning this also channel thoughts, statements, and actions of both individuals and groups. Indeed, so fundamental are these two issues that all else can be seen to be seen as mere footnotes to them. Physical science focuses on discovering and deciphering the machinery of the objective universe, the OU, and takes great pride in its insistently claimed objectivity in doing so. And yet, all such knowledge of external mechanisms is in the final analysis pointless unless related and relevant to conscious experience of it. If someone is not there to apprehend and appreciate it, the entire OU can emerge, exist, and ex-merge as mere happenstance. If it is not of interest to some perspective consciousness, it is irrelevant whether it existed at all or not. My efforts to write this book are wasted and the book itself inconsequential unless you read it and understand the message in it and then apply it. My companion book, Mind War, includes an examination of what I term thought architecture. Humans are normally both ignorant and unconcerned with how their thoughts originate and are structured. They just think, and that is all there is to it. But that is not all there is to it. The interface between the consciousness, alternatively the mind, and the physical senses, body mechanisms, receiving disturbances from and changes within the uh, outward universe is the brain, an electromagnetic chemical machine which processes raw sensory inputs into predetermined recognizable patterns or new experiences modifying existing patterns or forming the basis of very new ones. Overwhelmingly, about 95% of the time, this is a passive process occurring in the subconscious. An additional 5% rises to the attention of consciousness to require active consideration. Of Leonard Mlaudenau, PhD, Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior, the algorithmic thought, this results in deliberate decision-making, is also an assignment of the input to an existing or new pattern into which it did not fit automatically or subconsciously before. In Mind War... Or, oh, sorry, the Mind War is a manual for practical applications in the OU, so concentrates an identification and control of pattern and algorithmic thought.
It is thus a book about and a concept of OU science. This is, however, a third element of thought architecture, only briefly mentioned in Mind War, for the sake of thoroughness. Conceptual thought, also called creative or divine thought, this identifies thinking which is not the product of OU externalities and the brain sorting, recognizing, and classifying of mechanisms. It comes into existence in pure uniqueness, what Plato termed gnosis, or enlightened intuition. It is not a construct of the OU, rather it generates its own subjective universe, SU. As each such thought is discrete, an individual experiencing such will apprehend consequently numerous unique SUs, all of which in varying degrees of arbitrary importance coalesce into a comprehensive subjective universe, a CSU. In addition to serving as the mirror of the individual's existence and unique identity, the CSU also functions as an inexorably and inescapably, uh, inescapable filter through which interactions with the OU must pass. If input from the OU is not intelligible to the CSU, it is simply disregarded if it is detected at all as noise. Humans are most commonly familiar with this phenomenon as not wanting to hear it are tuning it out. The electromagnetic spectrum, EMS, ranges from a theoretical long wave, the length of the OU, to a short high-frequency waves, a fraction of the size of an atom. While the extremes of the EMS are theoretically infinite, for practical scientific measurement, the range extends from 0 hertz, hertz equals cycles per second, to 10 picometers, a picometer being a trillionth of a meter. Within this vast range of electromagnetic radiation, EMR, the conscious human senses can detect only the tiniest ranges of visible light, heat, and audible sound. Information in conflict with their accustomed CSUs, particularly entrenched rigidified instances, are often called sacred cows, and on a more comprehensive scale, religions. The academic and scientific community prides itself on existing intellectually only within the OU, indeed to the extent of rejecting any SU as an inconvenient and annoying obstacle of irrationality to be overcome, ridiculed, and ignored. Nevertheless, such Puritans have done nothing more than substitute an established consensus SU to override individual SUs. This becomes accepted scientific Realities are, as disciples would say, reality. Evolution through further OU investigates, investigations are slowed and occasionally outlawed by the consensus SU, which in this community reserves much the same function as religion everywhere else. As in religion, scientific academic community heresies commit by individuals or groups consistent or inconsistent with the orthodoxy of the moment are ignored and if necessarily actively suppressed and denounced the condescending term for debunked that centuries ago religious heretics were tortured and executed modern academic and scientific heretics were merely find themselves Orwellian unpersons with their work unpublished unemployed and are professionally exiled from conventional employment.
the more frightening heretics from Galileo to Wilhelm Reich types have been denounced as insane, imprisoned, or interned for mental health, or outright killed. In the more mundane proletarian culture of religion, the approved collective SU is called God, and the inconvenient annoying ones are called Satan. The names for each vary across cultures, but the underlying tension is the same. Where religion is taken literally and seriously as in medieval Europe and present-day fundamentalist Judaism, such as in Israel, Islam in the Middle East, and Christianity in some parts of North America, this can result in individual murder and our collective tribal war. Even when one manages to recognize and appreciate the individual CSU, this is still not the end of the quest, not yet the core of conscious existence. The CSU remains a mechanism, a lens, a means of interpretation used by the ultimate self commonly alluded to as the psyche or the individual's soul, which is the actual locus of conscious being. Since this soul is absolutely unique singularity, it can only be identified and realized, not defined in terms of anything external or a component of anything else. It is ethereal, and it is ethereality which has disconcerted many of those attempting to examine it. As it is sensed to be something distinct and apart from not just the OU, but even its own utilized SUs, it has been both revered and feared because its mysterious but conspicuous existence. And I would then, as you know, this is an editorial remark as someone reading it, go in to say that it's also not a part of both, which is the subjective or the uh, objective universe, but it's fundamental to both perceptions of subject, subjective or objective universes because the soul in a living body is, un, is a, can be denied by science, but the idea of life and death, life force, life inside a body is that magical where even if you completely deny all possible uh, unexplainable realities, the last single mystery is um, the difference between life and death. Like, what is the actual physical difference between life and death? That would still be fundamental to both to all exist, to all philosophies, all perceptions of reality would be the life and death binary, so, which is literally if a body has a soul in it, or if a body doesn't have a soul in it, which is exactly like, like it's just one of those things where you're like scientifically nothing is wrong with this person except it does not have a soul in them, and so it is not alive, and it's like okay, well the idea of that is something that all walks of being would have to address the idea that some have life some things have life in them and some things do not and they they are you know sometimes intersecting is that like, would things that have life then do not have life in them and then things that are not alive will then have life in them like that idea of life versus not life even if it's not life and death if it's just life and not life the idea of life which is the idea of a soul is still paramount to all universal uh intelligence even ai which itself would exist and no life as simply as existence why do some things exist and some things do not exist like that is definitely the question 
of metaphysics that everything has to answer. It's a philosophy that everything has to ask if they are intelligent. Most humans who are either voluntary or involuntarily slaves to collective SUs, either secular or religious, shun confrontation for their souls, which is clearly not a product or controllable by such collective larger SUs. Materialists who profess the OU as the only reality customarily deny that the soul exists at all. They say it is merely an illusion generated by the individual collective subconscious universe mechanism to give the device an artificial sense of consciousness, e.g. a deliberate direction of purpose and value. Conventional religion adherents, also sensing that the soul is distinct from and beyond the control of God, the OU, and religion dictate common SU, demonize it. It is either the devil or an extension of the devil, but whatever name it is called, as such, the soul must be forced into obedience or compliance with a larger, more powerful SU, so that there is a non-threat to the common SU. And it must be rejected, denied, punished, and if all of these fail, destroyed by killing the human body which is thought to inhabit and depend upon the soul for existence. Hence, history's religious wars, programs, persecutions, exterminations from the social to the individual level are explained. A somewhat different approach is that of collective SU such as Buddhism, which grapple with the soul by trying to redefine it as multiplicity of SU images, either individual or collective, each of which can be then forced into harmony with or absorption into a larger and more external image, thus eliminating any sense of separateness or responsibility. In actuality, there is nothing more than the monotheistic demonization recast into artificial fragments to make them seem more tangible and malleable. Finally, though less pre pre prevalent and conspicuous, are esoteric initiatory efforts to deliberately and intentionally merge and blend the individual soul with the presumed universal soul, which is vaguely thought to be somewhat similar entity for the OU and collective SUs of choice. Beyond and behind everything, the approach does not require the individual soul to be rejected, punished, or destroyed, but instead to be purified by any number of disciplines and exercises. When it has been completely so cleansed, it will rejoin the universal soul in ecstatic dissolution of its separateness, now cast off, returned to the oversoul. While a comforting propo uh, proposition for those who prefer soothing to suffering, there is simply nothing to support or substantiate the existence of a universal soul. Each individual soul senses itself and can be sensed by other beings with souls. But on a universal scale, there is no evidence whatsoever of any consciousness or volition such as would be necessary to identify such. In conventional religion, such acts of deliberation and purpose beyond the static are referred to as miracles. But except for the imaginatively credulous and faithful, no miracle has ever actually been recorded. As the soul is unique and completely singular, it is inherently impossible to define or describe it, only to apprehend and identify it. As noted above, this is frustrating and even alarming to humans who are accustomed to be able to regard everything as building. 
uh, a building block or a combination of such building blocks. Thus, they can make everything mechanical and so definable and practical. The realms of the physical and other sciences, the consequences of simply ignoring or denying the soul, nevertheless exist. It is the ultimate you of each individual. It is not just important, but indeed centrally so. Absent it indeed, there would be no perceiver of or no actor upon otherness. Everything beyond it, from the individual SU to the OU, would be absolutely, utterly irrelevant. All such external existence and phenomena would be entirely meaningless. It would make no difference whether any of it existed or not. The truth was perhaps first realized by existentialists such as John Paul Sartre, who in nausea sought to express the horror of incidental non-self-existence. That there should be such objection and phenomenology merely haphazardly struck him as nothing short of obscene. All non-self must have meaning and purpose assigned to it by the self to overcome this primal obscenity. Such assignment of meaning was assumed by the ancients to be the province of the divine, a super-universal intelligence, popularly the realm of gods and goddesses. Derivations or derivations of this authority was the direct assemblage of various such components into the physical and phenomenological OU as humans have come to discover it. Mindstar is a book about the soul, specifically yours, what it is, where to find it, and what to do with it, as you may be so inclined. Enjoy the adventure. One more thing, as you proceed through this book, you may get the uncanny feeling that you know everything in it already. The text is more a reminder than a teacher. Quite correct. As Mindstar is deliberately designed as an exercise in animasia, which you would be specifically reminded in due course. Mindstar is not merely educational or entertaining, it is transformative. Reading it, assuming you have the intelligence and attention to comprehend it, will set your feet on the path from mortal to immortal, from human to divine. Before reading further, therefore, reflect carefully upon the consequences of doing so. This is a judgment with which every initiate of set is familiar. But Mindstar does not require the formality, the choice, and the decision. However, are no less metamorphic. This realization and choice have been the subject of various legends and illustrations throughout humanity's many eras and cultures. One of the most poignant was the story of Aisha, priestess of Isis, whose relative by herself, guided throughout her life by the sage Newt to accept her human discipleship of the Nitter of the natural order. Aisha was finally entrusted with the guardianship of the flame, which possessed the power to transform anyone who stepped within it to personally divine. What was not evident was the inescapability of creative definition and the absolute loneliness in exercising it. With authentic godhood entails. Warned Newt, yonder fire will not destroy the mortal who finds the courage to stand in its raging path. It will give him life and with it such strength such beauty, and such wisdom as we have never been the lot man born of woman. Also, it will give them such passions, such despairs, and such unending woes as hitherto no mortal heart has known. There is the truth 
Ask me now not how it comes into my keeping and what thy voice may be which is speaking through my lips. A minute gone, this truth was mine alone. Now it is yours also. And being yours, I pray to the divine from which thy came, and whether we return again, that it may give you strength and the true wisdom, knowing all and rejecting all untruths, and turning aside from this glittering guerdon of enduring life, patiently, to walk your human path to the end appointed to our human feet. Ultimately, Aisha heeded the call of the fire, and in its embrace was transformed to the she who must be obeyed, immortal and omnipotent, with a beauty such that none could look upon her without succumbing to madness. Veiled, she endured countless centuries among madness. Veiled, she came among those whose human dullness enabled them to find the simple, naturally pleasures and contentments that were now intolerable to her. This is the danger of Mindstar, that it will make you what you envision yourself to become and empower you to see through and beyond all human illusion. Also that, as Aisha also discovered once attained, it is not reversible. Given careful thought to Newt's warning, therefore, before you too enter the flame, because if you do, there is no turning back, not just for the span of human life, but forever. If this terrifies you, read no further. Destroy this book. Chapter 1. The Universes We were not, as I have said, in any sense childlessly superstitious, but scientific study and reflection had taught us that we had known universe of three dimensions embracing the merest fraction of the whole cosmos of substance and energy. In this case, an overwhelming preponderance of evidence from numerous authentic sources appointed to the tenacious existence of certain forces of great power so far as the human point of view is concerned. Exceptional malignancy. Quote H.P. Lovecraft. A. Multiversiality. The phenomenon in individual consciousness is not identifiable in a vacuum. For humans to recognize this facility, they must first become aware of an environment outside themselves, then realize, if initially only passively, that they are severely something distinct from it. This would seem to be a simple and obvious juxtaposition, and so it is on the subconscious level. Humans go through their lives differentiating themselves. Humans differentiate themselves from their surroundings and other humans in any number of habitual stimulus response contexts. Nevertheless, while these same humans are casually comfortable apprehending the external environment, they are far less certain about and comfortable with perceiving and describing themselves as conscious individuals. Indeed, it is the confusion which is at the core of humanity's greatest discord among its species throughout its recorded history, as surveyed herein. Put simply, until you are clear as to what you are and what you are not, and what these three definitions are, you cannot make an intelligent decision concerning your behavior and its rationality. While this might sound daunting at first glance, the stuff of turgid theological puffery or excruciating graduate philosophy courses, it is actually quite obvious and straightforward. 
All you have to do is to confront it openly and honestly, which is exactly what Mindstar seeks to facilitate. For starters, the odds are that if the ordinary human were asked how many universes there are, the confident answer would be one. Actually, there are several, and an appreciation of this crucial question concerning human identity produces the objective universe. B. The objective universe. <coughs> the objective universe, hereafter OU, is what most humans are accustomed to regarding as the only universe, e.g. the totality of the matter. Energy and existence, of which these same humans would just assume themselves to be components. Humans are aware of the OU because they bump into it all the time. From stubbing one's toe to examining galaxies through telescopes. This surrounding is so constant and pervasive that they are physically and physiologically addicted to it. Removing such constant sensory reinforcement normally produces disorientation followed by panic and insanity. For the vast majority of humanity, ironically, it is thus the impress of the objective universe upon them which produces provides and reinforces their individuality and sanity. Humans have gradually realized that the OU is not chaotic and haphazard. It exists and functions according to inflexible physical regularities, normally known as natural or as they are now being called scientific laws. In prehistoric and primitive culture, both such laws were known to exist and be thus inflexible. The OU was assumed to be a variable at the manipulative will of gods and goddesses, and considerable effort was devoted to worshipping or appeasing such entities to prevent natural disasters or cataclysms. Of course, there were or are enough random intersections and interactions of natural laws to lend credence to divine intervention as explanations, particularly when preaching to ignorant masses. Conventional questions concerning the OU include, how did it come into being? Why was it organized as it is? Who created these natural laws? And why is the natural law so compelling and permanently enforced? Does the OU have a purpose, or is it just a gigantic accident? And, of course, what is or should be humanity's relationship with the universe? Obviously, humanity has been accustomed to addressing, if not answering, many of these questions by religious myths. It is easier for the ordinary mind to visualize a god compulsively snapping the OU into existence at a chosen point of time, for example, than to grapple with the fact that it has always existed and it was not a creative act, and in fact a creative act was therefore not needed. As the natural law, human science has no idea whatever why it is what it is, or what enforces it to be what it is. Science contents itself with the discovery and the codifying of such forces as laws simply as it is. Concerning humanity's relationship to the OU, this is examined in some historical detail in this book's discussion of Telos. 
The subjective universe. The subjective universe, hereafter the SU, is each self-conscious being's perception of the OU blended with personally generated overlays, selective impressions, and creative imagination as instinctive, indoctrinated, inspired, and are initiated. Thus, not even the most controlled physical scientist can claim to accurately and completely see the universe. What he sees is his filtration and distortion of it through his own subjective universe, which he has built up both consciously and subconsciously from innumerable sources external to him since his birth. More creative, artistic, mystical, etc. personalities encountered may let their subjective universes run even more freely to the point where the objective universe is of only occasional and necessary relevance to them. If some such persons need a stage where their SUs have completely replaced the OU, they may be called insane. In this sense, sanity is a measure of the individual suppression of themselves within socially sanctioned boundaries. Subjective-objective interactions. Once the simultaneous and permanent existence of the OU and SU is recognized, much of the mystery of human history and behavior is no longer mysterious. It just requires examination of each such individual group and or event to identify the applicable OU forces and the various individuals and their SUs through which they are being perceived and influence are influencing both the subconscious and conscious universes. At the subconscious level, for instance, an individual may assume that everyone else sees the same reality that they do, which in fact this is never the case. At the conscious level, the SU can be both easier and more problematic to handle. Easier to the extent that the individual is making willful decisions about how much of the SU he can successfully apply to the OU. More problematic insofar as others with their differing subconscious and conscious SUs may be the present and involved collective subjective universe, CSU. When more than one SU is present and involved in a society or problem situation, it should be obvious that no two of them will agree or perfectly, both in terms of subconscious reality perception and in conscious values, desires, and actions applied. Hence, both human society and human history is most accurately understood as the attempt by individuals to reconcile their conflicts into one or more community-approved collective SUs, hereafter CSU. Sometimes this is possible through peaceful means such as education, reasoning, or argument, in other instances where conscious SUs are too passionate or when subconscious SUs are too inflexible and intolerant, the individual groups may resort to coercion, aggressive and intensive, indoctrination, conditioning, and reinforcement patterns along with the suppression or extermination of all offending comp competition uh, to achieve the desired reality. In modern society, unsurprisingly, such coercion and intolerance are invariably attributed to the enemy, domestic outlaws, insurgents, revolutionaries, other alien individuals or groups. 
It is assumed without any need for the argument or justification that the community CSU into which its members have been conditioned since birth is not just one among many options, but the only reality with all others being wrong. Questioning it thus goes beyond acceptable curiosity to taboo and heresy, treason and insanity. This was most famously caricatured in George Orwell's novel 1984, in which failure to accept the party's CSU, not just at the conscious but at the subconscious reality level, was condemned as the worst of all possible sins. Thought crime correspondingly required not just punishment, but curing by destroying the offender's ability to see reality any other way than through the party's CSU. Next chapter. The Universal Course of Mindstar. As foretold, the above keys to the age-old mystery of human behavior are not the least bewildering since one knows how to look for and apply them. Mindstar, however, is not merely a guide to the study of human rationale and irrational behavior. It is not enough, nor is it reassuring just to realize that one is surrounded by a world of humanity which is trapped in an age of unrecognized prisons of conflicting subconscious and conscious SUs. I guess that's what we, we call the Matrix. From the smallest social unit to world ideologies and wars, helpless and hapless people are flailing around with the disease without even recognizing the symptoms, much less treating the cause. It was for this reason that I wrote the companion book Mindstar, Mind War. Unlike Mindstar, Mind War is a practice manual for the diagnosis and constructive correction of social violence from the community to the international scale. It is the intentionally exoteric and unintrospective. It does not seek to expose ordinary minds to the metaphysics of consciousness, but it is a prescription for the many, for the polis, not for the individual. Mindstar is quite the other thing, a guide exclusively for the individual, which never compromises with group influences, needs, perceptions, or pressures. It is a map to the Grail Castle, which journey and adventure are essentially and inescapably unique to each individual. Chapter 2. Conscious Existence We are all wired into a survival trip now. No more of the speed that fueled that 1960s. That was the fatal flaw in Tim Leary's trip. He crashed around America's selling conscious expansion without ever giving a thought to the grim meat-hook realities that were lying in wait around the people who took him seriously. All those pathetically eager acid freaks who thought they could buy peace and understanding for three bucks a hit. But their loss and failure is ours too. What Leary took down with him was the central illusion of a whole lifestyle that he helped create. A generation of permanent cripples, failed seekers, who never understood the essential old mystic fallacy of the acid culture, the desperate assumption that somebody, or at least some force, is tending to a light at the end of a tunnel. Hunter S. Thompson A Consciousness 
Having in chapter 1 established and defined the environment in which existence occurs, it is not necessary to discuss who or what exists and to perceive and uh, interact with its environment. A phenomenon of distinction from the environment is essential, and it must be aware of itself to recognize and appreciate that distinction. It is inherently a function, not a thing, traditionally called consciousness. The question of the 32, thing that is the conscious, is addressed in subsequent chapters. Consciousness in both the easy and difficult to establish, easy because its presence is obvious, the mere awareness, our self, our life of anything else characteristic of living, sentient life, our beings, having achieved this realization, the possessors of consciousness have found its constitution maddeningly elusive. Over the centuries, theologians, philosophers, and scientists have sought to portray and advocate consciousness as something either supporting or refuting the existence of what is really their concern, the soul. Metaphysics, consciousness as an entity. Since conventional theology regards consciousness as the soul in action, it has generally been happy to just blur the two concepts into a single Nothing further needed axiom of religious faith. Philosophers seeking to escape the label of such mere faith found that the moment they strayed from the simple act of self-awareness, they were actually addressing other issues, just as whether physical sensory input is or was occurring, whether such input is reliable, and indeed whether the mental processing of concepts and information, e.g. thought, should somehow be neither a requirement are evidence of awareness. Rene Descartes, famous cargito ego sum, I think, therefore I am, is an example of such off-the-mark confusion. Arguments both pro and con this maxim have all focused on the act of thinking rather than the act of self-awareness. C. Physics. Consciousness as an illusion. Modern physical science is adamantly materialistic. Any hint of the metaphysical presence or activity is tantamount to heresy. If consciousness exists, therefore, it must be explainable as the physical brain generating some form of illusion, self-imagery. In support of this theory, scientists note that if the brain is anesthetized to the individual blacks out, also, when the body and brain sleep, consciousness either blacks out or becomes merely a spectator to the hallucination called dreaming. Upon examination, both of these scientific claims fail to be conclusive, as ordinary consciousness is accustomed to being reactive to physical sensory input. The sudden muting of all such input by anesthesia throws the consciousness into a sudden non-sensory mode with which it has no experience. The result is a temporary inactivity, though below the level of sensory imagery, it continues to receive stimulus signals from the physical body. In certain anesthesia applications, moreover, the body transmits its consciousness uh, to a muted state while the, con well, the subconscious remains alert and communicative. If it was merely a function of the body's normal physical sensory processes, this would not occur. Where sleep and dreaming are concerning, it has already been established that the quality and coherence of the act of thinking is an entirely different concern than self-awareness per se. 
where ordinary sleep and dreaming are concerned. Once again, awareness must not be confused with thinking. In short, the random imagination, no uh, characteristics of dreams, or the absence of such experiences of the resting brain has so lowered its sensory transmissions has no relevance to self-awareness. Being self-aware does not require this to be continuous. The inconsequence. The phenomena of self-awareness is a simple incident essential to validating the distinction between the individual and the universe. Beyond this, however, it is not a component of either a soul or the physical brain body which can be used to verify either premise. Indeed, in the search for the soul, awareness is something of a red herring. Being confused with the thinking process by agenda advocates. Chapter 3. Egypt. Poor men. Most admirable. Most pitiable. With all their changes, all their great creeds change. For man, this alien in my family is alien most in this to cherish dreams. And brood on visions of eternity. And build religions in his brooding brain. And in the dark depths, all full of his soul. My other children live their little lives. They are born reach their prime, and slowly fail. And all their little lives are self-fulfilled. They die and are no more. Content with age and weary with infirmity, but man has fear and hope and fantasies and awe, and wistful yearnings and unsated loves that strain beyond the limits of his life. And therefore gods and demons, heaven and hell, this man, the admirable, the pitiable. James Thompson a voice from the Nile. Confronting Ancient Egypt It is impossible to proceed further with this inquiry. It is impossible to proceed further with this inquiry without bringing to bear the wisdom of the ancient Egyptians. By contrast, the efforts of later cultures have been little more than ignorant fumblings in the dark. Before turning to the specifics of Egyptian knowledge in this area, however, popular modern misperceptions must be at least briefly corrected. The topic of ancient Egypt generally has been one of both exhaustive examination by and contentious debate between conventional Egyptologists and independent investigators. The former group generally agree that Egypt was simply an agricultural society comparable to that of other Mediterranean or Near Eastern cultures of the time period. It was notable for its enigmatic hieroglyphic writing system, odd-looking formalized art, peculiar massive building projects, and morbid animal totem religious cultism. The latter group, while differing in the details, see Egypt rather as remarkable, indeed startling exceptionally, as its primitive neighbors in context were little more than cavemen. It was uniquely a civilization, a repository of great sophistication and wisdom. In some respects, so much so indeed that the very ability of the Egyptians themselves have generated such utopian wonders is called into question in favor of Atlanteans, extraterrestrial visitors, and or incarnated gods. Each camp routinely ridicules the other. 
The conventionalists denounced the independents as unscientific dreamers and the pyramidians. <laughs> the latter are equally contemptuous of the former, considering them little more than brittle academics self-procurating and afraid to violate modern taboos. And there are two taboos in particular which institutional academia does not dare to transgress or even openly acknowledge as taboos. First, modern Western civilization is assumed to be the zenith of human sophistication in all respects. It has been steadily improving over the last 5,000 years after recording history officially began circa 3000 BCE. Since the passage of time mandates social evolution and improvement, it is heresy to suggest that an ancient civilization, particularly one of the very beginning of the race of mankind, could actually have been superior to its successors, including these today, in some if not all respects. Secondly, the world today is divided into three major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all even in countries where they have become largely propaganda devices for the control of the lesser intelligent masses by dictators. They are as exclusive and intolerant as politically permitted. Despite their doctrinal differences, however, they are all agreed that there exists but one God, the Hebraic Jehovah. Thus, all polytheism, whether new or old, is false and fictitious. It follows that any such fiction cannot possibly be as much more or less sophisticated than Hebraic monotheism, triple modified, allows. Egyptian religion may be studied and exploited for artistic purposes and as horror movie villains but never actually believed in by the masses. Egyptian history. B. Let us now review those aspects of ancient Egypt on which most scholars, the academic and the arcane, might be expected to find common ground. The earliest existing evidence of human culture in the Nile Valley dates to more than 250,000 BCE as the remnants of hand axes and other stone tools have been uncovered 50 to 100 feet below the Nile River's silt. Sometimes between 10,000 and 7,000 BCE, according to the conventional archaeologist, a most important event took place, the domestication of the wild African goat and the subsequent freedom to begin cultivation of grain. This effectively heralded the beginning of the human civilization, as for the first time primitive man was free to turn his thoughts to matters other than a constant search for food. By the same consensus, it was in the pre-dynastic Gerzian period, commencing around 3600 BCE, that the first communities of the future Egyptian nation came into existence. A great war of unification commenced in approximately 3400 BCE after more than two centuries of intermittent conflict between the upper and lower Egyptian river deltas. The land was finally united under Menes or Narmer 
the first pharaoh of the first dynasty. Inhabiting a land characterized by the regular regularity of the elements, behavior of the winds, the Nile, the climate, the sun, and the skies, the Egyptians sought perfection and stability, harmony, symmetry, geometry, and a cyclical as opposed to progressive or linear conceptualizing of time. In modern culture, we take progressive or linear time for granted. It is as inevitable and exolerable as the hands of the wristwatch to which we are gently yet firmly chained. We see our lives and indeed the entire known universe as a terrible struggle against time itself, ending ultimately in death, decomposition, and obliteration of each separate person or thing. It is further this perception and the fear of it which has lent Hebraic monotheism a vampiric persistence far past the 17th and 18th century. Enlightenment, which intellectually at least exposes itself as a sham. For the Christian and Muslim versions, if not the Jewish, promise continuation of the same life after physical death, albeit with dire punishments, specifically for not believing in and obeying them in the living now. The Egyptians, however, envisioned neither themselves nor the world about them to be entrapped in such a fearsome forced march. They saw the sun, moon, and firmament behaving in recurring cycles. Also the rise and fall of the Nile, the regular seasons, planting life, reaching crops, harvesting fruits, and completing and reversing the same cycles. Humans and other animals were born, lived for a time, and died. It stood to reason that they too participated in an internal cycle of harvesting a much more subtle nature. Egyptian records would accordingly document specific personalities and events, but without any particular attention to related changes or innovations of the era. Harmony within the cycles of things, not defiance of them, was the Egyptian ideal which explains why the essential character of the Egyptian society remained little changed and unified except for a few external intrusions and thirsty dynasties, ambitious pharaohs, uh, but extended its rule for well over 3,000 years. Former director of Cairo's French Oriental Archaeological Institute, Serge Sonoran, comments, to understand the attitude of the Egyptians, it is necessary to emphasize the striking contrast between their view of the world and ours. We live in a universe which we know is in perpetual movement. Each new problem demands a new solution. But the Egyptians, the notion of time which modified the current knowledge of the world, an alteration of factors which forces a change in methods had no place in their society. In the beginning, the divinity created a stable world, fixed, definitive. The world functions as a motor, well-oiled and well-fueled. If there are misfires, if the motor fades, if one of the parts making it up is worn out or broken, it is simply replaced and everything starts off again completing its cycles until another needs replacing. Remaining the same, the mechanism unchanged. Its appearance, its output, would always be identical. 
If some problems intrigue the mind, therefore, if some serious event arises to disturb the customary order of things, it could not really be new. It was foreseen within the world. Its solution or remedy existed in all eternity, revealed in a kind of universal manner. The dynasty is generally considered to be the... Oh, sorry, that was a footnote. Um... The manner of use that the gods defined in creating the universe itself, what is necessary, therefore, is to find the ancient writings, the formula that foresaw such an, uh, such an odd case before, if given of an event, a physical phenomenon, a catastrophe striking the whole country, the scholars would not seek to discover the actual causes in order to find the appropriate remedy, but would rather examine the scholarly history and or the volumes of old lives to find out the solutions that had already occurred. In accordance with their cyclical perception of reality, therefore the Egyptians' achievements tended to be timeless. Areas such as astronomy, mathematics, medicine, and architecture. These, along with Egyptian religion and art, are often oversimplified in many modern treatments, due in part to the absence of verifiable data in later history until the deciphering of hieroglyphics by Champollion in 1822 because of the destruction and dispolition of ancient Egyptian records and works of art by religious fanatics of later eras. It is estimated that modern archaeologists have at their disposal less than 10% of that country's cultural creations from which the reconstruct, reconstruct its values. Egypt was divided into 42 nomes provinces, each dominated by the priesthood of one or more Nidaru, a particular priesthood might also influence more than one nome. The monarchy was closely controlled by the various orders of priesthood, with the pharaoh acting as an earthly deputy of an interpreter for the Nedarum. Governmental, judicial, and political systems were responsible for the ethics of the Nedarum, not to the eight people. I said, not to the people. Justice was meted out by viziers, internal roving ambassadors of the pharaoh, and nome governors, according to the leader of justice, Mott. On an individual case basis, there was no concept of individual rights against the government because government was viewed as a system imposed from without by the Nedaru. Similarly, each Egyptian, whether high or lowborn, participated in this system. Crime and corruption were, of course, possible, but inadvisable because of the conviction that viciousness, callousness, or cruelty would be punished severely after earthly death. It is of note that such posthumous judgment focused upon the individual virtue vice rather than, as in later Christian Islamic doctrine, upon mere orthodoxy or obedience to religious institution. Old Kingdom Egypt was largely insulated from the foreign invasion or conflict. Hence, Egypt spent its early years as a peaceful culture with no standing military. 
Egypt is credited with invention of the alphabet as well as the use of currency as a medium of exchange. It is noteworthy for having produced the first national as opposed to a city-state political system as well as the most enduring one in recorded history, more than 3,000 years. There was no ca caste, racial, or sexual discrimination. Foreigners were considered less than human, equal Egyptian, but could remedy this misfortune simply by moving to Egypt and adopting Egyptian culture. Egypt was ultimately destroyed by foreign conquerors, Persia, Macedonia, Rome, and by her inability to adapt to the continuing competition of foreign cultures. The new empire of the Setian dynasties was a protectionist backlash rather than an effort to civilize or create a permanent empire after the fashion of Persia, Macedonia, or Rome. The Nidorum. The Nidorum. The Egyptians perceived the universe as actively controlled by consciousness. Natural principles, the Nidorum, of which sort E.A. Wallace Budge remarks. The word neater has been translated to godlike, holy, divine, sacred, power, strength, force, strong, fortify, mighty, protect, but it is quite impossible to be certain that any word which we may use representing the meaning of neater, because no one knows exactly what idea the ancient Egyptians attached to the word. The truth is that the exact meaning of neater was lost at a very early period of Egyptian history, and even the Coptic does not help us to recover it. To the Egyptians, all of nature derived from the word neater was alive and the direct consequence of the wills of the neateru. Nature was intelligible not just through inanimate autom automatic general regularities which it could discover via the scientific method, but also through the connections and associations between things and events perceived in the human mind. There was no distinction between reality and appearance. Anything capable of exerting an effect upon the mind, therefore, existed. Hence, a dream could be considered just as real and just as significant as a daytime experience. No more eloquently has this been summarized than by the She Who Must Be Obeyed and H. Ryder Haggard's She and Alan. Alan Quartermain. I have heard of Isis of the Egyptians, Lady of the Moon, Mother of Mysteries, Spouse of Osiris, whose child was Horus the Avenger. Aisha. I. And I will think I will hear more of her before you have done, Alan, for now something comes back to me concerning you and her and another. I am not the only one who has broken the oaths of Isis and received her curse, Alan, as you may have found out in the days to come. But what of these heavenly queens? Only this, Aisha, I have been taught that they were but phantasms fabled by men with many another false divinity and could have sworn that this was true, and yet you talk of them as real and living, which perplexes me. Being dull and understanding, doubtless it perplexes you, Alan, yet if you had imagination, you might understand that these goddesses are great principles of nature, Isis of throned wisdom and straight virtue, and Aphrodite of love, 
as it is known to men and women who, being human, have laid it upon them that they must hand on to the church of life and their little hour. Also, you would know that such principles can seem to take shape and form and at certain ages appear to be servants visible in majesty. Through perchance today, others with changed names weld their scepters and work their will. Now you are answered on this matter. The Egyptian concept of magic, correspondingly, was neither unusual or exceptional. It merely represented in setting motion of appropriate nat and tiru forces to accomplish a desired end, which could be through physical action, symbolic ritual, art, or speech. Heka. A magical operation thus initially required perception, sia, of a necessity followed by an utterance of the Heka to address it. Egyptian art, literature, and science looked for beauty and symmetry, felt to be indications of divine perfection, rather than for the cause and effect relationships between events. Hence, Egyptian thought is sometimes called geometric, as opposed to algebraic thought of the Hellenic and our later European logicians. Since impressions and appearances substantiated reality, the Egyptian emphasis on portraits and statues of the Nidiru was not merely decorative, metaphorical, or symbolic. Rather, an image was made through a medium whereby the Nidir in question could make an actual appearance into the material world. Similarly, part of something could substitute for the whole as long as the mind completed the connection. Mental imagery created by viewing the portrait of a dead relative, for example, brought that relative to life. Persons unfamiliar with the ancient Egyptian culture often assume that Egyptian religion, like those of later Mediterranean civilizations, consisted of a single integrated pantheon of anthropomorphic gods and goddesses. It is rather the case that the earliest Egyptian Nidaru were prov provincial beings, patrons of individual cities and districts. First, nor despite their famous human beast composite appearances, were they mere supernatural persons in the later Greek Mesopotamian or Roman mold. While popular stories were woven about them, presumably for popular consumption, the hieroglyphic treatment of the Egyptian Nedarus suggests that they are actually representing various aspects of existence. The forms are first principles discussed by Pythagoras and Plato in the more abstract manners. Intriguingly, the Nidaru may have had a physical presence as well. The 30 dynaster dating system most uh, archaeologists uh, use for ancient Egyptian comes from Manetho, an Egyptian priest of Sebenados, the Nile Delta calendar's uh, 280 BCE birthday. Manetho's dynastic list extends backwards before Menes and the first dynasty date of 3100 BCE, 350 years. Uh, the knights, 1,790 years other. Memphite kings, 1,817 years other kings, 1,255 years of the heroes. And before that, 13,900 years in which the Nedaru reigned physically on the earth. 
Obviously, the chronology would conflict with the accepted prehistory of Egypt as summarized at the beginning of this appendix. Uh, conventional Egyptologists are comfortable with only a civilization beginning suddenly at 3100 BC as agriculture and tri as tribes learned agriculture and settled the Nile River uh, Delta. Similarly, hence Manitho is relied upon very strongly after that date, but swept under the rug prior to it. Commerce, protective alliances, cultural contacts, and finally the unification of the entire nation in 3100 BCE results in the gradual incorporation of local Netaru into regional groups and then into loosely knit national pantheons. The local and religious cult centers continue to hold their respective patrons in a special regard. However, and so the character and role of a specific neater might vary remarkably from place to place. Individual dynasties also tended to be oriented to particular cult centers, and so the neater in question would be elevated, at least for a time, to the status of national patrons. The information concerning these cults, which is available to modern Egyptologists, is both sparse and confusing. Since given Nader could be portrayed in a number of different ways, identifying the core Nader is difficult. The images and inscriptions concerning a Nader were often altered and appropriated by cultists in rival Nidaru. In Christian and Islamic times, all god go old gods were considered blasphemous, and monuments to them were regularly defaced and destroyed. By the end of the 5th century CE, knowledge of hieroglyphics had died out not to reappear until the 19th century. Meanwhile, many useless records perished through neglect. For two reasons, the cult of Osiris, Asar, and Isis, Asa, has been emphasized in modern literature. First, it was the last cult to dominate the entire Egyptian nation. Thus, it was in a position to do a final editing of non-Osirian manuscripts and monuments. Secondly, it was described in detail by Plutarch, permitting its study long after the hieroglyphic records of other cults had become unreadable. Set No records of the ancient priesthood of Set survived first the Osirian dynastic persecution and later the more general vandalism of the Christian Islamic eras. We know of it only by its reflection, both in the character of Set, which is portrayed symbolically and mythologically, and in the nature of Egyptian priesthoods in general. Three significant facts are known about the priesthood of Set. Together with the priesthood of Horus the Elder, it was the oldest of the Egyptian priesthoods. If we date it to the earliest predenized pre-dynastic images of Set found by archaeologists, we can establish an origin of at least 3200 BCE. Working with the Egyptians' own astronomically based records, we may approximate 5000 BCE 17... Oh, if we are to assume the final eclipse of the priesthood at the end of the... I believe that's... I can't read Roman intervals. Setian dynasties... Um, at 10,855 BC, we are looking at an institute which existed at least 2,000 years and possibly as many as 4,000 years. In the early dynasties, observes Budge, Set was a beneficent god and one whose favor was sought after by the living and by the dead. And so late as the dynasty kings delighted to call themselves beloved of Set, after the cult of Osiris firmly established, and this god was the great god of all Egypt. 
it became the fashion to regard Set as the origins of all evil, and his statues and images were so effectively destroyed that only a few of which have escaped by accident and have come down to us at all. One may note that Set was by no means the only fabulous creature ever portrayed by Egyptian artists, but he was the only one represented as a principal needer as opposed to a purely animalistic monster of the tout. Set was the needer who was different from all the others. Too often this is simplified to as being the evil slayer of Osiris, hence the personification of evil. Yet any but the most cursory study of Egyptian religious symbolism is sufficient to dispel this caricature. He was rather a neater against the neateru, the entity which symbolized that which is not of nature. This is a very curious role for a neater in Egyptian cosmology, to be a presence and a force which alone cannot be apprehended by perceptions of the natural senses thus representing the nameless thing whose existence we know of by the shadow it casts on other things apprehended and things perceived by it the non-natural presence of self telos an individual intelligent life Various post-Egyptian cultures have generalized the vehicle by which this presence is manifested as the spirit, the psyche, or the soul, but increased precision is possible. We must subtract from such crudeness what is life force and focus our attention on that which remains, the very awareness of self. In doing so, we have in one sense retraced the path of Descartes to the cogito ergo sum proposition. Unlike Descartes, however, we see this phenomenon to be a thing totally apart, which is not an extension of God or anything else in the universe. Set is a conceptualizer of this principle, the designer of the principle. To rewrite the crucial sentence in the above quote from the point of view of a neater, a thing created in the mind thereby exists. This is delicate ground to tread, so much more so for an ancient Egyptian civilization whose entire natural cosmology was based upon the perfection and harmony of the universe. Despite this unique and disturbing image, or perhaps because of it, Set became the patron of the two most powerful dynasties in Egypt's long history, the XIX and the XX. Herein, there is an interesting theological succession. The early dynasty, 1580-1372, was of the great Amenhoteps, during whose reign the priest of Amenhotep, Thebes, was prominent. The dynasty disintegrated during the Armana period, of the Akhenatans, during which the solar disk of Aton was considered supreme, if not indeed all-inclusive of all Nidaru, 
When the new dynasty arose under Ramses I and Seti I, the state role of Amon was restored, but the pharaohs directed much of their efforts towards Set, recounts Sunerion. The new dynasty in power, careful to appear to be restoring everything back to original order, had many reasons for mistrusting the Ammonian priesthood. Descendants of a military family of the Eastern Delta, the new pharaohs were traditionally devoted to a god little esteemed by the masses because of the role that had been assigned to the death of Osiris. But they preserved, nevertheless, here and there, the temples and priesthoods of the god Set. The Armanian experience had demonstrated the cost of too abrupt a break with the beliefs, central to the entire nation and entering into open warfare against a priesthood practically as powerful as the empire itself. Thus the politics of Seti I, 1312-1301, and Ramses II from 1301-1235 were infinitely more subtle than those of their predecessors. There was no rupture within Thebes. The constructions continued. The magnificent edifices were raised to the glory of Amon at Karnak, Guana, and Ramesium. But it was when the Osirian center of Abydos that Ramses appointed the high priests Amon. Then he installed two of his sons, Meriterm and Kamost, as the high priests of Ra at Heliopolis and Ptah at Memphis, and demonstrated by further monuments and political favors his public support of these gods. But finally, wearied of Thebes and his ambitious priests, he departed to build a new capital, Pi Ramses, in the eastern delta, where he could quietly worship the dearest to him, Amon. Then he instilled two of his sons, Meridium and Kamost, as the high priests of Ra at Heliopolis and Ptah at Memphis, and demonstrated by further monuments and political favors his public support of these gods. But finally, wearied of Thebes and its ambitious priests, he departed to build a new capital, Pi Ramses, in the eastern delta, where he could quietly worship the god dearest to him, with Amon occupying a secondary prominence. The provincial cities were set had been worshipped from all eternity, among them Ambos, Tibu, and Sipramura, gained new prominence from a favor accorded to the Ramesid leaders to the god of the eastern delta. Above all, Pi Ramses, the new capital, brilliantly restored the worship that Set had formerly received from the avarice of the Hyksos during the Setian dynasties most probably during the reign of Merinpat. The revolt and exodus of the number of nomads, hieroglyphic Habaru, living in Egypt's Goshen province occurred, or at least did so in Jewish legend. Although Old Testament lore states that the original Hebrews were a unified foreign culture when they entered Egypt during the time of Ramses I, there are no Egyptian records substantiating this. It is more probable that the actual participants in any exodus were people from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. Possibly the Hebrews hated Satan derives from one of the honorific titles Set Hin, Eternal Set, 
recorded to the state deity of the regime they were fleeing. Following the passing of two Setian dynasties, the increased influence of the priesthood could not be courted by the hard evidence of the exodus events in the preserving deserts of Sinai, where most of the biblical wanderings are said to take place. It is similarly elusive, although its climate has preserved the tiniest traces of ancient Bedouin encampments in the sparse 5,000-year-old villages of mine workers. There is not a single trace of Moses or the Israelites passing through the desert, and they would have been far the largest body of ancient people ever to have lived in this great wilderness. Neither is there any evidence that Sinai and its little natural springs could ever have supported such a multitude, even for a single week. Several 19th century vicars recognized this fact within a day or two of this, uh, numerous expeditions in search of Moses' footsteps. Escaping from the rigors of the English winter, as one of them says, in the land of the flock and the tent, to which our only guide was the Bible. They quickly realized that the biblical exodus was a logistical impossibility, and that the Bible was most ambiguous guide to that desolate region. The biblical description of the exodus then flies in the face of practical experience. Indeed, the closer you examine it, the further it seems removed from all of ancient history. Ramesses the Pharaohs, that of Osiris, bodied ill for the priesthood of Set. The Osirans recast Set as Osiris's treacherous brother and mortal enemy of Osiris's son, for whom they appropriated the Neter Horus. Not content with attacking Set personally, they further appropriated his consort and son from the original triad of this cult, Neptis and Anubis, whom they now described respectively as a concubine of Osiris and a son of Osiris by Neptis. Between the two dynasties, a violent reaction set in against this god set. His statues and figures were smashed. His effigies were hammered out from the base reliefs and the stelae in which it appeared. Various reasons for this reaction have been proposed by Egyptologists. It has been suggested that Set fell into disrepute through being associated in the popular mind with the Setuk of the invading Hyksos. Possibly, but improbable as the Hyksos invasion occurred prior to those two dynasties when Set was preeminently in favor and the presiding Neter over Egypt's greatest period of imperial military glory. Set's eclipse may well have been due to a more subtle yet pervasive sentiment sweeping ancient Egypt. As Sunarion and many other Egyptologists have acknowledged, Egyptian philosophy was based upon a millennia-old conviction of the absolute presence and influence of Neturu in the virtue of a social system in which the preservation of cyclical harmony was all important. Well, the new empire of the two dynasties extended Egypt's influence to Palestine and Mesopotamia, it also made the Egyptians aware that there were many other functioning cultures in which the Nitiru, our gods of the Egyptian pantheon, were unknown and unworshipped. At least by the Egyptian names, 
Moreover, the concept of the Egypt as just one of among a na- number of nation states equally powerful and equally numerous competing for power and influence along the Mediterranean Ocean and understandably, imaginably, the world rather than as the one civilization literally at the center of all existence. This must have been a most unsettling idea in this ancient culture, which previously had been able to discount its neighbors as mere uncultured barbarian tribes. Egypt's solution to this problem was to turn gradually away from the glorification of this lifestyle and towards the orientation on the afterlife, which, with such disturbing dilemmas, could be assumed not to exist. This would explain the growing influence and popularity of the Osiris cult during the post-dynasty Egyptian decadence. Osiris was the afterlife neater. As the Osirian cult portrayed set as Osiris's nemesis rather than an independent and pre-existing neater with no particular interest in Osiris, this would also explain the simultaneous wave of anti-Setian prosecution described by Budge. It was characteristic of ancient Egypt that each new dynasty in an attempt to establish its own timelessness often doctor monuments and records to eliminate inconvenient inconsistencies with history. Presumably the Osirian dynasties followed this suit defacing and rewriting all references to Set that did not support their portrayal of him as a devil, and that this distortion of Set, which survived in later Mediterranean legend, principally through Plutarch, who described it in some detail in his Moralia. The greatest breakthrough from modern scholars of Egyptian metaphysics came from the writings of René, Ions. Rene Schwaller de Lubitz and his wife Aisha. Indeed, much credit is due to her because much of Rene's work is highly technical. Aisha synthesized its elemental themes into her highly readable novel, Herbeck, a young Egyptian's journey from ordinary peasant to initiated priest. Rene's initial realization came from his study of hieroglyphics that, in addition to their convenience for mere alphabetics, they embodied symbolic principles apprehensible to both the rational and the super-rational intelligence. His methodology is thus often termed symbolism. Gradually, he extended his awareness of this key to Egyptian culture to architecture, as in his magnum opus examination of the Luxor Temple Complex, Le Temple de la Homme, and Pre-Pythagoreanism, are the various secondary works Examining Renee's ideas, John Anthony West's Serpents in the Sky is the most immediately intelligible introduction. Another very capable presentation is Egyptian Mysteries by Lucy LeMay, Renee's longtime student and the talented illustrator for both his works and Aisha's. In the original 1994 Stargate motion picture, the Great Pyramid of Giza is revealed to be nothing more than a crude ritualistic imitation of a fearful proto-diagnostic Egyptians towards a gigantic pyramidal starship 
in which creatures beyond their comprehension had come to earth. The stone coffer in the king's chamber was a similar rough image of the wondrous machine in the starships with the power to literally bring dead bodies back to life. In that film, as well as the elegant television series it subsequently inspired, the alien gods were not quite the Naturu they pretended to be, simply an advanced species using divine imagery as means of psychological domination of others as well as their own exotic pleasures. Nevertheless, these Gauld almost uncannily demonstrated the relationships which ordinary humanity has with its perceived god or gods and why it's quite fulfilled by such a relationship, false and oppressive as it may be. A world after world, civilization after civilization, it is ever the same. And when the Gauld is exposed or killed, the result is always chaos and uncertainty with the liberated people slipping down into aimless, tedious tribalism. The wanton terrors of the Gauld are gone, but so are the great gleaming pyramidal starships, the technology to instantly heal all injuries and even restore bodily life itself to the dead, and the ecstatic experiences of interacting with the gods face to face. Stargate leaves its audiences with even more tantalizing mysteries. If the Gauld burrow their persona from the real Naturu, whom they have used technology to imitate, how did the original forms come to know them? Which leads to my central question from the ancient Egyptians. Why didn't their culture develop? The evidence shows that their arts, sciences, mathematics, technology, techniques of warfare are all there complete from the beginning. What I want to argue here today is that the Egyptians of the pre-Old Kingdom era somehow inherited all these arts and sciences. Then, after a short-term getting acquainted period, we see the full flowering of what we call Ancient Egypt. Lecture Daniel Jackson, PhD, Scottish Rite Temple, 4357 Wilshire Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, December 1992. Chapter 4, Adamnesia, From Soul to Mind Star. Hollywood is a place where they'll pay you $1,000 for a kiss and 50 cents for your soul. I know because I turned down the first offer often enough and held out for the 50 cents. Marilyn Monroe. Anamnesis. Plato devotes his dialogue Mino to an exposition and demonstration of Anamnesis, the faculty that, as sentient beings have lived previously eternally, their knowledge of the forms, the Tiru, creative organizing and preserving principles of the OU, is also permanent, recallable through the exercise of dialectics. Through this mental discipline, the conscious mind is inspired through progressively more precise questions to discard later coarser, inaccurate concepts in favor of their pure original substance and clarity. The key of Anamasia comes down from Plato from Egypt through Pythagoras, as Dr. Regan, uh, or Rigavon Iyer summarizes. Thus the soul, since it is immortal and has been born many, many times and has seen all things both here and in the other world, has learned everything that is already. 
so we need not be surprised if it can recall the knowledge of virtue or anything else as we see it once we possess it. All nature is akin, and the soul has learned everything, so that when a man has recalled a single piece of information, knowledge, learned in it an ordinary language, for example, there is no reason why we should not find out all of the rest. If he keeps out a stout heart and does not ever grow weary of searching, for seeking and learning are in fact nothing but recollection and memory. Plato, Mino. Anamnesia is the true soul memory, intermittent access to the divine wisdom within every human being as an immortal spectator. All self-conscious monads have known over immemorial time a vast host of subjects and objects, modes and forms, an ever-changing universe. Assuming a complex series of roles as an essential pair of endless processing of learning, the soul becomes captive recurrently to myriad forms of maya and moa, illusion and delusion. At the same time, the soul has the innate and inward capacity to cognize that that is more than any and all of these masks. As every incarnation brings manifestations, a poor, pale caricature of his true self, a small, self-limiting, and inverted reflection of one's true, naotic, and creative potential. The ancient doctrine of Anamisia is vital to comprehending human nature and its hidden possibilities. Given the fundamental truth that all human beings have played many parts, initiating diverse actions and intertwined chains of causation, it necessarily follows that everyone has the moral and material environment from birth to death which is needed for self-correction and self-education. But who is it that this has a need for? Not the shadow self or false ego, it's, or ego which merely reacts to external stimuli. Rather, there is that eye of wisdom in every person which in deep sleep is fully awake and which has a translucent awareness of self-consciousness, a pure, primordial light. For a reader to apprehend the original Egyptian gnosis of what modern man only dimly and vaguely calls the soul, we will now highlight this corruption and degeneration preliminary preliminary to jettisoning them. Western Religions Recall from Chapter 1 that human societies are generally not comfortable with free and independent SUs. At the conscious level, humans dislike disagreement and wish for consensus, but far less apparent and more deadly are SU conflicts at the subconscious level, which threaten the prevalent and acceptable view of reality. Until recent centuries, control of Western civilization subconscious CSU was by institution of the dominant religions, Judaism and its Christian and Muslim variants. They defined reality and, of course, punished or killed heretics who could or would not see their reality. Anticipating Orwell's 1984, evangelists and inquisitors saw themselves as saving or curing unbelievers even if the cure was individual execution or heathen culture extermination. 
the Judeo-Christian soul. Judaism is most significant from a CSU standpoint for its introduction of the concept of original sin, according to which every human begins, lives, and ends his or her life under a curse and condemnation from Judaism's God. This greatest of all sins results from Adam and Eve innocently and ignorantly eating of fruit in the Garden of Eden, which gave them individual SUs, awareness of their freedom to assign meaning and evaluate the goodness and evilness of all according to their own intelligence and experience, not that given by God. In effect, they had ceased to be non-conscious components of the original universe, and this separation was the greatest sin. Implicitly, their OU, original universe, separation from the eating of the fruit was also passed along to all of their descendants, who, who similarly inherited the same inescapable sin. Consider the effect the CSU has had upon all of the civilizations in its grip. The entire Jewish, Christian, and Muslim world, down through the centuries, humanity is taught that it is inherently and inescapably evil, so much so that even the most strenuous of purging and punitive lifestyles, such as monasticism, nunnery, celibacy, etc., are futile. Only through the intercession of divine saviors such as Jesus Christ or the prophet Muhammad can a fortunate few humans hope for even posthumous relief. For everyone else, this life is a journey of misery followed by an eternity of torture. In its original pre-Christian hell concept, ancient Mesopotamians, including the Hebrews, considered the underworld, Kunago or Sheol, as a dim, dismal place in which the once incarnated soul disintegrates. Hence, their approach to life was fatalistic and pessimistic, with ethics considered in terms of earthly consequences only. Contrasting this with the culture of ancient Egypt in which there was neither original nor inherited sin. Each individual, individual was born a blank slate and had full discretion to pursue an incarnation of virtue or vice, after which, at the entrance of the afterlife, the deceased's heart would be weighed against a feather to fairly ascertain whether pleasure or penance had been earned. The Judaic soul, unlike anything in Egypt, metaphysics, was thus something very shameful, reprehensible, and evil to practice. What could families, communities, or nations composed of such flawed and doomed creatures hope to accomplish? If they could not save themselves in the greater sense, of what value were efforts towards morality, virtue, and other behavior supposed to please, if not placate, God? It wasn't until the late 17th and early 18th centuries, the Enlightenment, that Judeo-Christianity ceased to be regarded as literal truth and became merely a propaganda tool for controlling the large amounts, the masses of ignorant and superstitious people. 
Thereafter, and to this day, it receives extensive lip service and ceremony, but without the intelligentsia or even its own cadre of, of priests regarding it as anything more than a fairy tale. Neither God, nor Jesus, nor Satan is regarded as anything more than a convenient, symbolic lie. It therefore takes some effort to cast oneself back to pre-enlightenment times when all such influences were held to be quite real indeed. And so the determinants of human actions, once this is appreciated, the Crusades, religious wars, sect persecutions, and heathen civilization exterminations are coldly understandable, not as aberrations or crimes, but as the God-sanctioned normal reactions of humans conducting themselves as faithful. The enlightened relegation of Judeo-Christianity from truth to fiction was echoed in its conception of the soul. Previously, the soul had been real, tangible, and an object of fear or self-hatred within each human. Now that it was eliminated, society had to develop new ways to entice or coerce the dominant culture. We shall survey these devices as they were introduced and are still used today. But before doing so, we need to clear away the remaining wreckage from the popular, nation, uh, popular notion of the soul and return again to Egypt for completeness and clarity. Soul. Definition. The immaterial essence or substance, animating principle or actuating cause of life or of the individual self. Two, the physical, psychical, or spiritual principle in general shared or embodied in individual human beings as having rational and spiritual natures. Two, the psychical and spiritual nature of the universe related to the physical world as a human soul to the human body. While a superficially impressive attempt, this definition finally falls back on empty circularity. What is an animating principle? And would the soul not exist if it did not animate externalities? What is meant by psychical and spiritual? As Robert Anton Wilson quipped in Schrodinger's Cat, theology was a system for explaining things by coining words, which nobody could understand, and pretending that the words meant something everyone felt. Jewish and Christian Afterlives Within the Western cultural tradition, it is rarely realized that its two major religions, Christianity and Judaism, are actually at extremes apart on this issue. Christianity in all its many forms upholds life after death as reason for abstinence in this life and in this world. Judaism, on the other hand, insists upon this life only and absolutely disregards the afterlife. Rejecting justification for human behavior on any grounds other than Jehovah's direct instructions to living human beings. The Jewish religion proper as described and taught in Genesis and all the historic books until the end of Chronicles, is the crudest of all religions because it is the only one which has no theory of immortality, not even a trace of it. Every king and every hero 
or every prophet is buried when he dies with his fathers and there is an end of the matter. No trace of an existence after death is indeed necessary to be believed in in Judaism. Indeed, as if intentionally every thought of this sort has seemed to be removed. Schopenhauer is only partially correct. The ancient Hebrews drew no distinction between the human souls and the animating force control common to all animals, which they called nefesh. Although some part of this animating force was thought to survive the destruction of the body, it was regarded with superstitious terror and referred to ambiguously by the terms Elohim, Raphaim, and Dibbic. In the 2nd century BCE, Hebrew doctrine had changed to include the revivification of the material body, but Hebrew theologians never extended this philosophy and principle to the Pythagorean or Platonic concepts of an independently surviving psyche. Not surprisingly, the original Christians continued this Jewish tradition of corporal revivification using the Greek term psyche to mean much the same thing as the Hebrew nephesh. In Matthew 10.28, where the soul is mentioned as distinct from the body, their posthumous reunion is promptly suggested. The most conclusive example of this doctrine, of course, is that of Jesus' own material resurrection. But by the time of Paul, the distaste with which sophisticated Greeks regarded this animation of corpses otherwise known as Anastasis Necron, induced the apostle to modify Christian teachings in the direction of Pythagoreanism. Paul was further aware of the presumably sought to overcome the challenge of Gnostic and Hermetic Christianity being a blend of basic Christianity with the various ancestral Egyptian and Greek mystery schools. In the 1 Corinthians 15.35 and 2 Corinthians 5.12, Paul offers a mixture of Pythagorean and Hebrew ideas, whereby the posthumous soul is given a spiritual body, a soma pneumaticon, which nevertheless requires a bodily form. Despite Paul's efforts, Christianity has never succeeded in breaking free from the notion of reanimation of the original corpse, which at least has been the grist for the mill of horror film producers. While there have been many explanations for Christian antipathy towards Judaism, one of the most crucial has to do with Jews' failure to be posthumously accountable in any way for their worldly living conduct, implying that they are self-serving and indifferent to ethics. Observe Dietrich Eckert, initiate of the Tool, Gesellschaft, and mentor to Adolf Hitler and Alfred Rosenberg in 1919. It is now evident that a people which completely deny the existence of life after death must limit all of its thoughts and endeavors to the present world. To earthly exist, it has no other choice. But a people can only grow up with such an emphasis on worldly matters if it fundamentally lacks any need for immortality, and which in turn is possible only if there is no trace in feeling its basic character for the eternal goodness of mankind. Wherever the soul manifests itself, no matter how faintly, a sense of immortality necessarily will follow. 
The individual is not always consciously aware of this. Indeed, there are many who refuse to understand this. The 1945 discovery of 13 original Gnostic codices at Nag Hammadi in Upper Egypt has shed much light on the ideas with Paul has to compete. The codices themselves date from 350 to 400 CE, but are probably copies of a 2nd century CE original, who are so ignorant concerning the concept of immortality that they habitually denounce it, even while their unselfish actions clearly reveal that each one of them senses the soul and therefore eternity within themselves. Although Pauline Christianity attempted to appropriate the Pythagorean Platonic concept of the soul, distinct from within and ultimately free of the human body, it was unable to sustain this concept without the vehicle of the body. Christian artistic representations of posthumous paradise are invariably sterile and dull. It will be recalled that Christ's ultimate promise upon his second coming was to reunite all souls with their ex-bodies so that they would once again enjoy their original corporal forms. 